This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. A little BB King here. Uh, I gotta say, it's been an interesting week, Jason, so far. Uh, one of the things that we kind of kicked off the week was the zero fee band aid was kind of ripped off in terms of online trading. Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, uh, eliminating commissions on trading. The investment world continues to evolve and get upended. So here were some thoughts on what's going on in the fee-only advisory business. Is Greg Gore. He's Senior Vice President of Wealth Management at Commonwealth Financial Network, on site with us at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. The world continues to change. And change very quickly. <laughs> what are some of the major themes that you guys are hoping to really get into uh, at the uh, conference this year? Yeah, I think the continued evolution um, to fee only away from commission business. I mean, that's sort of you know old news at this point, but yeah. it continues to accelerate. Um, yeah, it's amazing that there's even, I feel like that everybody isn't <laughs> fee only at this point, considering the environment. Yeah, and it's... You know, it's not something that we necessarily want to push advisors to move to. Um, It's something that I think, you know, advisors need to move at their own pace. And while everybody, I think, recognizes that ultimately that's where most of the industry is going to end up, Mm -hmm. um, it takes time to get there. You know, you you have a very entrenched um, product manufacturing and distribution system that people have, you know, used over decades. and, And you don't just restructure that, you know overnight or even over the space of a couple years. So, you know, one of the, one of the approaches we take is, is working with advisors to lay out a timeline and a path basically to get them there in a very structured, measured way that sort of minimizes the disruption to their business and their clients. Yeah. Well, and as you walk around and, and talk to people here, you know, a couple thousand people here, as we noted at the, at the top of the show, what's top of mind and, you know, to sort of go down a level, what's top of mind that they're saying to you sort of filtering up from their, from their clients and, and customers? Yeah, I think, you know, in two days into this conference, if there was one theme that's, that's really obvious to me is I think advisors are really um, gravitating toward the planning and starting to sort of de-emphasize a little bit the investment management Interesting. side of their business. And, you know, I think Commonwealth is a firm has always been very planning centric. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Carol, you mentioned um, sort of the price wars that are going on all around investment costs. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, the extent to which advisors are able to really pin their value to the planning and not the cost of investments becomes a real differentiator as this whole thing plays out uh, going forward. You know, as long as clients look at their advisor um, and really recognize the value they're bringing apart from just investment management, right. um, I think that's a very strong tie that binds. I got th- to say, in terms of planning, and I know one of our guests is going to talk about um, this a little bit later on in terms of financial education, but I do think, are we getting closer to you know, having people out of college really start with a financial plan? Because I think the earlier you start, the better you're going to be, especially since you're not going to have a lot of, you know, retirement pensions from companies that just is going away. So I'm just curious, are we getting better about that? Because I think it's important. I think there's a number, um, a number of developments there. You know, there's a lot of firms that are trying to figure out, I think, how to cater and scale 
millennial mm-hmm. planning. Um, you know, the student debt, that's a huge story and yeah. in, in helping recent grads deal with that. Um, obviously, it's an area that, you know, sort of traditional financial services hasn't paid a lot of attention to. It's very much been an asset-based model. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think as this continues to play out in the shift from investment management to a more planning-centric, you're going to see a lot more flat fee arrangements. You're going to see subscription-based services. Right. Um, and I think even, uh, you know, established successful financial advisors are going to look to that market, um, you know, as their business matures and they've got to do a generational shift. Right. They well, have to, right? They have to. <laughs> well, yes. and, and the yeah. subscription-based uh, element is so interesting, too, because you think about how, especially like our kids, yeah, you know, how exactly. they sort of consume content, how they consume information, the way that they expect to engage. I feel like if you had said to me 20 years ago, this is going to be subscription-based, I'd be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Whereas for them, it's incredibly natural. And if they can roll that into the way they live the rest of their lives, it, it does feel more, not just holistic, but comfortable yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think it's just very consistent with, you know, you've got a whole generation of folks now who are grown up with Netflix, who've grown yeah. up with Amazon Prime and, you know, everything Buying functions in that model. the sharing economy, right? You're doing everything on a monthly basis. Yeah. So it's a great entry point. Um, and then I think is, you know, these folks progress in their careers and they have more income and they're their situations get more complex, you know, maybe they migrate to a more traditional model over time. Um, but there's no shortage of participants that are going to figure out um, how to participate in that market right. in, in a scalable, profitable way. How much do you guys also talk about the disruptors, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Google? You know, was it Jamie Dimon at the Bloomberg uh, Global Business Forum? He, they were asked, he was asked about, like, who do you keep an eye on? Are you worried about Facebook and Libra and all that stuff? And he goes, oh, yeah, I watch all these guys. How about your community? Um, I think you got to watch every, every, everyone and everything, right? Um, you know, you, you never really see the one that's going to get you, um, <laughs> no matter how much you watch. Um, you know, it really, um, fintech... All, all, all the efforts in those spaces. And I think right now what fintech's really focused on is trying to figure out, can you really scale the financial planning? The investment right. management, I, I think that's sort of yep. done. D- done deal. Yep, done. You know, that, that's been but commoditized. planning has a human element to it. It has a human element. And I don't know, what, well, you can scale certain aspects of that. Um, I think ultimately the, the human interface is always going to have a value that people are willing to pay up for. Right. Yeah, and I think great. especially when it comes to figure out the kind of risk somebody can deal with. Yeah. I, I think the nuances of that. Greg, thank you. My pleasure. Great. Greg Gore is Senior Vice President of Wealth Management at Commonwealth Financial Network. One of our hosts here in Aurora, Colorado. It's Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. Much more to yes. come from here. We're going to talk about all aspects of the financial world. Rocky Mountain It was only a matter of time before we uh, heard that. Uh, so let's get into the business of skiing. As we said, I was very mm-hmm. excited to just think about skiing when we landed here. Rob Katz is CEO and chairman of Vail Resorts. He joins us on the phone from not too far from here, uh, Boulder, Colorado, where it's certainly getting underway in terms of getting ready uh, for the yeah. ski season. Uh, Rob, great to have you with Carol and myself. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, thanks for coming out to Colorado and joining us here. I know. We're excited to be here. So give us a sense of what we're going to expect, what we should expect from Vail Resorts as we get into the season in a meaningful way. What's new and different? You just did a big deal. How has the business changed? 
I think, um, you know, in a couple of ways. One, I think the, most, the thing we're most excited about right now is just that, uh, you know, we're starting to turn on the snow guns at uh, Keystone, uh, right up the road here on I-70 in Colorado, and everybody's getting excited for another great season. Uh, so we can't wait to get that underway. Uh, from the company's perspective, yeah, uh, big news on a couple of fronts this year. One is the peak uh, resorts acquisitions, where uh, we added 17 new resorts to our company, which really gives skiers and riders a ton of more choices when they buy one of our pass products. The other thing that's big news for us this year is the Epic Day Pass. Historically, we sold a season pass uh, that really required somebody to ski kind of four or more days and got a 50% off type discount. This year, we actually have uh, introduced a one, two, and three-day product so that people can get those same discounts, even if they're only going to ski a couple of days for the season. So that's what's got us jazzed. And and help us understand the economics of, of that decision. Is that sort of owing to the scale that you have and sort of the volume of people you have coming through? How are you able to make that work? Um, well, one of the things is we do tell people that um, to get this great discount, like 50% off, we want them to uh, make that purchase by around Thanksgiving. Got it. Uh, and, and because of that, that gives us right, uh, much more certainty, allows us to plan, make the right investments for the season, ensure that we keep right the quality at the absolute highest level, and it gives our guests the best discount. Yeah, I do wonder, Rob, you know, how many of those season pass sales, how many, how much of it do you get to really lock up early so that you do have that clear visibility in terms of spending and what the season's going to be like uh, uh, in terms of overall sales? Is it 50%? Is it 60%? Is it 40%? Yeah, it's, it's around 50% uh, uh, in terms of our lift ticket uh, revenue, a little bit under, and a little bit more in terms of visits. Uh, and obviously, along with that, right, a, a big chunk of a ski school and retail and rental, lodging, right? A lot of people then, because they've made that commitment, they, they follow through on those plans. And in particular, it's because there's so much to do at our resorts, right? It's one of the things we really pride ourselves on. That skiing, of course, is why people come, but it's all those other activities that really round out the vacation. How much are repeat visitors to as well? And I'm curious, you know, if you're able to kind of hold on to somebody who comes to one of your resorts and they time again, year after year, are coming back. Yeah, it's a, it's a big percentage of our business, um, and, and we really look at it two ways, right? There are those resort loyalists, um, and we're very focused on them, getting them coming back to the same resort year after year. Then we have folks, though, who what we, we kind of call samplers, right? No matter how great of an experience they have at one of our resorts, they want to try something new the next year, and I'm, I'm sure you guys know of folks that vacation like that, some people that go back to the same place, some people that always like to try something new, and now with 37 resorts and 60 resorts on our path, including our partners, we really have the opportunity to serve both of those clientele. Right. Well, and Rob, one of the things that's notable, I think, about this latest acquisition of Peak is we're not just talking about sort of the high, high end, the, you know, the, the Vales. And, and even Keystone, I know, is, is not quite as fancy as Vale. I've skied them all. Um, but, you know, back east especially, you've got some, uh, you know, some names like Hunter uh, and some of the names in Pennsylvania as well. So it feels like you're trying to appeal to a wider variety of, of consumers who maybe can't afford to hop on a plane and, and get out to Vail. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's part, partly that. I think it's also partly that even some of the folks who ultimately might take a vacation out west start their skiing experience on some of these smaller resorts. We, right. you know, The name of our season pass is the Epic Pass, and we actually talk about a lot of these smaller resorts are where Epic begins. Uh, I had my first ski experience at Hunter Mountain. Uh, and so we want to make sure that that first ski experience that people have is a positive one, 
uh, make it accessible, uh, and then op- absolutely start uh, getting them to try some of the other resorts. I feel like so many people, I said, you know, growing up in the East Coast or on the East Coast, had their first experience at Hunter. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I remember skiing as, as at Hunter as a kid, and I was lucky yeah. enough to come out to Keystone and uh, Vail as well. Uh, Rob Katz, thank you so much, CEO and Chairman of the Board. Come see us uh, in New York for sure. Maybe we'll come see you uh, at one of your resorts. That they are beautiful. I can attest to that. I do want to mention SunTrust, uh, by the way, ra- raising its price target on uh, – Bale Resorts today to 280 from 247 to reflect the company's acquisition of Peak Resorts. That deal, of course, closing this week. I got my All right. Well, as we delve deeper into the world of investing and really taking care of your money, we're delighted to have Shabri Moore with us. She is president of More Wealth based on the other side of the country in Frederick, Maryland, back closer to our home. Mm -hmm. But she's here with us on site at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. Shabri, great to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. One of the reasons I think Carol and I were both so excited to talk with you is that we spend a lot of time on this show and Mm -hmm. in other parts of our lives sort of trying to think holistically about our lives. And, And I think we're at this interesting moment, even societally, culturally, where people are taking a beat and saying, okay, where do I want to be? What do I want to do? You know, mm-hmm. we're sitting here in, in beautiful Aurora, Colorado, where it's a lot easier to have some of those big thoughts <laughs> yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Yes. And yet when it comes to money, people tend to be very parochial and tend to be very um, limited maybe in their thinking. How do you break people out of that mindset? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, usually when people come to speak with us, they think we're going to talk about numbers and analysis and research. And certainly we do. But a big part of our conversation is about what do you want to do? Who do you want to be? What is important to you? And we like to call that research based with a heart. And that heart piece is so critical. Right. Like I I remember talking to my own brother and his wife and they had their own little whiteboard of their financial goals. And and sometimes it's a new car. Sometimes it's a beach house or sometimes it's, of course, getting the kids through school. It's good to kind of have an idea of what someone's priorities are. Take that into account and then shape it, help them shape what they need to do. Yes, absolutely. So it's having those tough conversations sometimes during their working years and also as they're approaching retirement. Right. One of the things we found is people don't know how to put their emotions in words. Uh, They may say, this is what I want, but we don't know how important that is until we dig deeper. What's the toughest conversation or what are the toughest issues that you have to deal with with some of your clients? Uh, It's usually when they're approaching retirement. So we want them to think about not just the money. We've got the money figured out. What we want to think about is who do you want to be in retirement? What is retirement? What's important? Who's important? What are you going to do? But don't you have to do that earlier? We do. So that About you can five make to seven years. I was just prior, gonna, yeah. But I was just saying so that to make sure that if what they want to be in retirement, they've done the planning 10, 20 years before. Well, then or, that's the money part. Okay. The emotional piece is more of five to seven years hmm. before retirement because that's when they start thinking about it. In fact, they haven't thought about it or they're so terrified about it that they put it on the back burner. You know, we had a workshop a few years ago. Joni Youngworth, one of the managing principals from Commonwealth, came out, spoke to about 45 of our clients. And she ran this whole workshop by asking them those tough questions and running them through exercises individually and then also as couples to help them define what that is. And so the response was phenomenal. And we still use a lot of the questions and exercises that she put them through with our clients on an individual basis. And it's been wonderful. We learned so much about them. that aren't you I'm like curious like what's the kind of conversation is it like like what does it come down to boil down to so it's again they can't talk about the emotions so we rephrase this question Mm. and we'll ask them okay 
draw a picture for me and show me what life looks like five years into retirement. What does life look like 10 years? What does life look like when you're not here? And so it's interesting. Themes come through. They draw pictures. They write words. And here's what's common. They care about their family. They care about certain causes. I never hear about possessions. It's all about Mm. time Mm -hmm. and experiences with the people they love. So you have brought your sons into your business, uh, I believe. Yeah. And it's interesting from a personal perspective, um, the, the gentleman who has helped my wife and me sort of manage our, our money over the years has recently brought his son into the business mm-hmm. over the past couple of years. And it's amazing to me how the perspective changes in a lot of ways, how our conversations change. Mm-hmm. Tell us about sort of bringing your sons in and the perspective that that, that has brought, because obviously by their nature. They are younger, and so they're coming at it uh, from a slightly different perspective. What have you learned from them? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So my sons are Eric and Sean, and they're 26 and 31, respectively. They come in, and they bring an energy to the practice that I think is wonderful, but they also bring fresher ideas and different ways of looking at things. So sometimes if we're stuck and saying, where are we going from here? They'll say, well, why not here? And just because, well, think about it, baby boomers, we've redefined everything. Right. We don't follow the rules. We've changed them. I'm a baby boomer. I don't look at retirement the same way my parents did. Mm-hmm. My sons don't look at that at retirement the same way we do. How are they looking at it? What, what have you learned from them in, in that perspective? Yeah, they're so young. It's kind of tough. Right? I they know. think they're going to work forever. <laughs> of course. <laughs> They've got 40-year careers ahead of them. So right. that's a tough picture for them to but look at. But it's interesting that you say that this idea of working forever, because I do think for baby boomers in general, there was this idea of like, I will work until age X, right. you know, and usually mm-hmm. it's 60 or 65 or whatever yeah. it's going to be. Yeah. And then there's like, uh, something that happens and then I am retired and th- it's a yeah. very strong move from A to B. I feel like even for it's folks changed. our age, like mm-hmm. that's changed in terms of yeah. certainly how we think about what retirement broadly defined mm-hmm. looks like and feels like. Yeah, absolutely. So instead of defining it as I'm retiring at 62 or 65 or whatever that magic number is, it's more about reinventing yourself. What am I going to do next? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it may be a career that pays money. It may just be something that you really enjoy doing. Um, it may just be volunteering. So we, it's changed. There isn't a defined retirement. Retirement is just, this is another part of life. This is the next stage. Yeah, because I think about, you know, going back to school, you could in your mm-hmm. retirement. Absolutely. Because you do see education changing where you can come in and pop in and maybe take a course. Well, we were talking about this with the that, president of Penn State just the other day, about. this idea exactly. that once you go to school there, you now essentially have an ID, a college ID for life and yeah. you can just pick up a course whenever you want. Right. And I think you appreciate it more later. Right. So yeah. what's your advice to somebody? So a client comes to you and, you know, in terms of planning for their retirement, thinking about it holistically, what's your advice? Wow. That's going to be so dependent upon them. So really, it's more, not so much advice, but it's more about asking questions. I want so what, th- what are the questions somebody should ask themselves in kind of thinking about what they need yeah, you know, for yeah. retirement? So sometimes it's just about writing down what your goals are mm-hmm. and writing down, I enjoy doing this. I enjoy traveling. I enjoy volunteering with this organization. I enjoy spending time with my family. I enjoy spending time with my kids. So start writing those things down and thinking about, all right, this is important. Now let's prioritize it and figure out when you're going to do that. Because 
let's be realistic. At some point in your life, you're physically not capable of doing some things right. that you are when you're younger. Right. So maybe we'll prioritize them and help you figure out, I'm going to do this when I'm younger. I'll go climb Machu Picchu now. Right. <laughs> and, right yeah. I'll go on a cruise when I'm 80. Yeah, yeah. So yeah exactly. Yeah. So it, it, it's getting to the core of what's important. Yeah, I love it. And I love the idea of this continued move towards more experiences and things that really matter mm-hmm. versus stuff, right? Versus we have stuff, these conversations yeah. sure. about too much stuff right. yeah. out there already. Great stuff. Yeah. Shabri Moore is president of More Wealth. She's based back in Frederick, Maryland, here with us in Aurora, Colorado at the Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. We're going to have more conversations ahead about money private and public. I was going to say, I love that she brought her sons in because we keep talking <laughs> about the importance of a company, you know, bringing in different voices, diversity of thought. Um, those are the companies that are going to be positioning themselves for a longer future. Are you going to throw Absolutely. me aside so that you have Aggie as your co-host uh, <laughs> going forward? Is that I'm what, not ready to do it, that it, with a teenage yeah, girl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That would be quite a that different would show. Be different. That'd be quite a different show. Well, it's a lot less private than it used to be, and nothing private about the cover story of Bloomberg mm-hmm. Business Week this week. A tour de force, I believe, <laughs> is what they call it. Joel Weber conceived it. He's the editor of Business Week, and Heather Perlberg was one of the key people pulling it off. They're both back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So, Joel, set this up. I did for not us. conceive this. Well, it was a team effort, all it, right. it was incepted. Well. Accepted. Uh, there you go. They they had they got me though because they said uh, something that you and I have talked about a lot, which is, do you just understand exactly how much private equity is touching you, yeah. Joel Weber, or you know, average American or Carol international, not average, but and, Carol and, Masser. And that sort of like really resonated with me because the more that we started thinking about it, it was like, wow, this is an industry that historically has meant leverage buyouts, uh, but in the 10 years since the financial crisis has no one, no one won the last decade quite as much as private equity. So we really wanted to kind of like dive into what that meant and what's changed. And one of the things that uh, really stuck out was a story that Heather uh, Pearlberg brought to us about uh, the influence in Washington. So Heather, what what did you find? Well, these guys are definitely winning in Washington. Uh, wouldn't make anyone happy, really, right now. Elizabeth Warren's ready to clip their wings. Uh, she is increasingly getting louder and louder. And in the past decade, they've built up their lobbying groups. They've they've really mobilized. They've become sort of a mature industry. And they have all the key people in the right places, Beltway insiders who know how to play. And they're doing everything they need to do to get their way. And I think one of the things that uh, really stuck out with me on this was uh, carried interest is one of the places that uh, the private equity, private equity industry it makes its money, right? It's an incredibly lucrative loophole, effectively, and it's one that's totally legal. And uh, it's, it's, whenever it comes up in D.C., it seems like everyone, even Trump, will, will you know, for a while – was, was like yeah let's let's do away with this and yet that quietly you know seems to dissipate all the time exactly so, so what what did you find out on that front well there's sort of a lot of a backdoor efforts negotiating private equity on both sides of the aisle, uh, carried interest on both sides of the aisle. And in this case it was a lot of people, a lot of figures who were becoming increasingly more powerful, 
people in Trump's orbit. You have uh, Blackstone heads meeting with important people. John Gray, number two, who orchestrated the whole Hilton Hotel deal, meeting with the Mnuchin, uh, all kinds of top economic advisors, and talking about what this means to private equity, which is a lot of money. So, Jason, you know, you, you, you know about private equity as much as anything, and you were involved in this package. What, what did you learn from working on it? You know, I thought the, the Washington piece was was really an eye-opener for me for all the reasons that you guys have just discussed. And, you know, I do think one of the things as we dug into, and Hema Parmar and I spent some time looking at the returns equation, and, you know, I think one of the most important things that came out to me was this notion that returns may not be what they historically have been, A, and B, uh, that not all private equity firms are created equal, and there are some who have done extraordinarily well. That's why the money keeps coming in. You know that top quartile that we hear so much about. They've done extraordinarily well and done right by their customers, their clients, the big pensions and endowments. I also was reminded how much more pressure those ultimate investors are putting on these firms as well, Carol. And I have to say one of the things I find really interesting in this coverage, and I love it, and I also just want to put kudos out to the whole team who was involved. 14 bylines on this thing. Exactly. (laughs) And Jason, who's written two books on this, so we we love to talk about private equity, but I am fascinated by the the number of billionaires. We're not talking about millionaires, billionaires that have been minted in this space, and perhaps how private equity – you know, for better, for worse, has contributed to the inequalities that so, we talk about so, so much in our world So let me throw this today. number out, Carol, because you yeah. put this on a tee from the story. There are more private equity managers who make at least $100 million annually than investment bankers, top financial executives, and professional athletes combined. Yeah. That's a lot Amazing. of money. That's yeah. a lot yeah. of money. Right. Yeah. And I think that is one thing that, that really cemented this. For me as well, and Heather did a great job sort of outlining all of it because she's looking at this day to day. And I do think ultimately it was one of the driving forces of this entire package is this is why we care. The influence, Mm -hmm. I think, is especially notable. And And while this certainly isn't a valentine uh, to the industry, I think it's a very clear eyed look at how in terms of ownership and in terms of influence, you cannot ignore this industry. Right. And especially as we move increasingly, it feels like to, to private markets versus public markets. So, Well, that's, um, that's why the, the industry has really thrived in this, in this yep. back decade. You know, everyone's searching for yield and, yep. and this industry is, it outperforms, you know, like that, that is the allure, uh, but it comes with some costs sometimes too. And that's ultimately what we tried to talk about. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to work on. Really appreciate both of you joining us today. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Weekend. Heather Perlberg, private equity reporter extraordinaire, both back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. It's a takeover of the finance section of the magazine. It's a must-read if you want to understand what private equity is all about, how it works. And I'm going to do a shameless plug because my co-host has written two books on it, so check them out. All right, so one of the things that I've really loved about the conversations we've been having today is we're talking to a group of people who are really, truly taking a holistic view mm-hmm. of their finances. And I feel like for so long, it was such a parochial 
system in a lot of ways that, you know, you would go in and see somebody and they'd sort of run you through the numbers right. be like, okay, goodbye, and you'll get a statement uh, next quarter. Catherine Liola is here. She's the founder and chief executive officer of Concentric Private Wealth. Even the name sort of gives you that sense that there's something uh, new and different going on. there was on. a plan here. Yeah, there was a plan. There was a plan. <laughs> She's here with us in uh, Aurora, Colorado at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. She's based back east in Virginia. So give us a sense of your approach here because it does feel a little bit different. We have a very unique approach. So yes, we are a comprehensive wealth management firm, but our focus is one of the lens of behavioral advice. So what's really important for us is to help walk the client through the process of why are they doing what they're doing? Ultimately, what's important to them? And helping them get to the place where they're understanding what's important to them and then aligning their decisions and their planning and investment strategy with that. I love, and I tease this, that the one question, simple question that people should ask, and you say, can change the course of their financial future, is why? Yes. So, so give us an idea. So you're sitting down with some folks, and so what are you specifically kind of, what's the conversation? Well, when we first sit down with anyone coming in, it's really important for us to meet the client where they're at. Because it might be something that they're going through a period of transition, a kid going after college, maybe a job change. We need to make sure that we're first tackling that so that the client feels safe. Once the client can start feeling safe, then we can really help them start exploring. You know, all of us, when we were at some point or another, for many of us, when we graduated from school, whether it was college or getting our master's in something, that was often when our education in who we were stopped. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a coach or a parent or multiple other types of leaders saying, consider this, consider that. I see that opportunity in you. What we did do is often sign up for a job. And then that job turned into some type of promotion. And then we began having responsibilities and obligations. And all of a sudden we're on this track and we're subconsciously following this track forward. But often it has nothing to do with what that fire is inside of us. Mm. And from a financial perspective, why this is really important is because our decisions are all based on this lifestyle that we've built up. But if that lifestyle isn't about like who we are as a person, then how are we possibly going to have financial independence? Right. And one of the other questions you ask, which I love, and you have young kids, is what would your kids do? Exactly. Tell us what that looks like and, and how people react. Because I, I read that and I thought, oh, wow, that's a totally different mm-hmm. mindset. Where did that come from and what does it lead to? Well, I'm the mom of three little kids. I have a six-year-old, an almost five-year-old boy, and a daughter who just turned three. And my goodness, those kids have really helped me see myself more clearly, but also to simplify You know, kids often have the answers to everything, and we adult them so quickly in life. And if you just watch a kid, they go out and play, or they explore, or they want to read or study because that's what's inside of them. They have that curiosity, and we try to get them to fit in this box. But that creativity is slowly taken away, and we then don't necessarily get to see who we are. So when we're looking at kids, it's really about helping them explore who they are, having fun, enjoying what they're doing. I'm a big believer that if we can follow what our strengths are, if we can follow what's important to us, then the finances come with that because often we are going to be simplifying the things that we have in our life. Now, we still might want to have that big house, but if we want that big house, great. That's where we should be spending our money. Or if we really want to travel, then great. Let's go spend a ton of money there or a ton of money on travel. But what we don't want to be doing is spending money and investing money in purposes that have nothing to do with actually what's fulfilling us. Because at the end of the day, happiness comes from fulfillment. It's something that's more fleeting. We can't just search for financial independence. We can't just search for happiness. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't have any type of foundation. 
So we really need to build on that foundation and the finances come with that. It sounds so obvious and I love it, but I bet there's so many people you sit down with and you've got to kind of get them to that position, right? Like, okay, this is what makes you happy. So then this is where you should focus on or what you should focus on. It's super hard. And honestly, being a mom now has helped me become much more empathetic to how long this process takes. This is not something that we can just, okay, turn on the switch and everything's going to be perfect. It's really about taking step after step after step. So it might be first in terms of how you're blocking out your schedule. It might not have anything to do with your finances, but beginning to find places in your day-to-day that are more you. Maybe it's a place to journal. Maybe it's trying a new Mm -hmm. activity. And then slowly but surely, it might be taking that bigger step of saying, all right, maybe we're going to actually take this type of vacation, or maybe I'm going to actually consider something like a career pivot. Right. Or maybe move out of the neighborhood that I thought was so important to me. But at the end of the day, that was just what I thought I was supposed to be doing because I'm making a certain amount of money where I have a certain type of position and I've made it and that's where I'm supposed to be. So it's a long process, but at the end of the day, really focusing on taking each small step right? and recognizing the same thing happens with kids. Well, and I love the fact that you sort of try to get to people sort of where they are because we all show up, I would imagine, uh, when we speak to someone like you with these sort of hangups about money or these sort of conceptions about money that we, we grew up with, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. either based on our parents, the way we grew up, our right. financial situation, or as you say, like maybe things you even learned uh, in college. It must be hard, though, to sort of, we only, only have about 30 seconds left, but to break people maybe and and to get them to think in a different way so yes we think of it more as about pulling someone out building the fire inside of them rekindling interesting so it's not about so much breaking someone down as it's about lighting that fire and when you start lighting a fire we've all seen a fire making s'mores or whatever it builds if you give it attention yeah and what we're trying to do is give people the opportunity to give themselves attention and then the finances will align with that it's like a yoga financial class. I know. God. No, seriously. I, I mean, I'm someone who's done yeah. yoga a long time. <laughs> totally. Um, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. Catherine Loyola, she's founder and chief executive officer of Concentric, who's Concentric, excuse me, Private Wealth, based in Virginia, on site at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference in Colorado. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. So financial literacy, financial inclusion, it is a topic we've been talking about a lot here on Bloomberg Radio at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. That was one of the topics that got highlighted. Chuck Olson has been working with companies and others to provide financial education for employees. I love this topic. I think it should be everywhere. Chuck is CEO and wealth advisor at Calmwater Financial Group based in Norfolk, uh, Nebraska. Right? That's Nebraska. I know. Not, I not know. New it I know. Not no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not New England. It's <laughs> or, not Virginia. I know. I know. I have it written down. I'm like, wait a minute. He's on site with us at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. I have to say, this is near and dear to me because I think we really dropped the ball in teaching people about uh, what they need to know in terms of kind of financially getting themselves set. I think we really have a big gap. Tell us about specifically what your company is up to. We've got a lot of different uh, things. Obviously, we have uh, just personal wealth management with personal clients and things. But, you know, we did the 401ks. We were the advisors on 401ks for many, many years. And and over time, we just felt that there was this literacy need that was out there. And so we would go out and we would... What was missing specifically? You know, specifically, it was um, just connecting basic information at first. It was basic information about how to invest, how to have your money invested in a 401k. 
the idea of having an emergency fund, you know, not relying on the credit card. And there's a lot of people who are really good at sales who think that if you can afford a $500 a month car payment, you should buy the $500 a month car. Right. And just the whole idea of, of staying away from debt, saving for the rainy day with an emergency fund, and understanding short-term savings versus long-term savings. And for many of us, it seems very natural and, and fairly simple. But for many, many people, it was just very difficult for them to put all of that stuff together. And so the, literal, the literacy that we saw uh, went from, or the literacy needs went from just educating that, hey, you should be putting money into your 401k to, hey, you need to understand all of your company's benefits. Right. And you need to have consultants in there that actually go back to the companies and say, hey, this isn't going to cost you any more to add this benefit, that benefit, or for a little bit more, help your teammates or help your employees out by offering these types of benefits. Now, we don't want to be in there, our, our company doesn't want to be in there and be the 401k provider, be the insurance, representing the insurance company, because I believe there's a conflict of interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we come in as consultants, and then we have a lot of meetings that we make mandatory. We, won't, we will not come on to some of these companies unless they make our meetings mandatory to introduce the program. Because we've all been there before. Hey, come to this financial planning seminar uh, and learn about how to get into a budget. You know how many people show up to that deal? Not Zero. Yeah. <laughs> so companies have to buy into this deal and they have to come in and be willing to pay for our services uh, and, and, and our advisors to come on site. So our advisors are not trying to sell anything as a way of being compensated. The companies pay our advisors bills. We go in there um, and we do what we call the six key areas of wealth management. And we teach everything from tax planning to saving for the rainy day and budgeting and also providing attorneys on site to get everybody's legal documents done at discounted prices. And then the attorneys reach back out uh, to HR with, uh, or they actually provide the the employee a list of how they should have their beneficiaries designated based on their wills and things. So a lot of this stemmed from just basic Let's get into your 401k to all of a sudden, you need to understand all your benefits that everybody has available to you. And let's get out of this debt issue and living paycheck to paycheck and let's dream big. And I have tons of stories about how these people just living paycheck to paycheck never, ever thought they could be a millionaire. Yeah. And that whole concept and showing them how to do it and showing the time value of money and being able to get them from living paycheck to paycheck and, and all this and having arguments at home to having this dream together for a husband and wife or partners out there to dream about how they can be independently wealthy. And so we've only got about a minute left, but are are companies buying into this? Because I feel like we are huge beneficiaries of a company that is very (laughs) forward thinking about all of this. But for a smaller company, you know, they may be thinking, look, I can't afford this. I I, want to do this, but but I really can't. How do you get them uh, over the hump, the companies themselves? Yeah, we we always talk about the cost is going to be less than one half time FTE. Yeah. And... Roughly, that's kind of what it's FDE? been. FDE? Uh, full-time Full-time equivalent. Oh, okay. Sorry, FDE. So, so you bring on an entire team to help out, and it's yeah, going to cost you less than one half of a, of a full-time employee, and, we, and you're not paying us you know, benefits and things like that. Yeah. But our advertising is really word of mouth. Our company has boomed in the last eight years because one company talked to another and goes, you guys aren't doing the calm water program? And they go, what's the calm water program? And they start looking up, and then we get phone calls. And that's how we've boomed. We have... You know, we're in northeast Nebraska. That's not New England. That is Nebraska for people. It's <laughs> the second time I had to explain that to somebody today. Emmy is not n- New England. I did. But it's, she it's, doesn't get out of New York much. Yeah, yeah right, right. Hey, hey, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah. But the whole idea of we've boomed to, to work with 50 different companies outside of Nebraska yeah. in the last eight years and some of them Fortune 500 companies. 
and we bring on other Commonwealth advisors around the yeah. area to help us out in those areas. Come back in the future because yeah, I would love great. to continue this conversation. Love to do that. Yeah. All Thanks right. for having really, me. Really, really interesting. Chuck Olson, CEO and Wealth Advisor for Calm Water Financial Group. I even just love the name. I know. Calm Water. I'm a sailor. We like Calm Water. There you go. <laughs> I'm my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. A name familiar to our audience and nice to be on his home away turf. Brad McMillan is with us, Chief Investment Officer, Managing Principal at Commonwealth Financial Network. One point, excuse me, $161 billion in assets under management based in Waltham, Massachusetts, on site with us at Commonwealth Financial Network. So 2019 relaxed. National Conference. It's like we just walked into your living room. We're expecting like a cheese plate or something. I think you know, I was giving a heart attack. $1.6 billion in assets. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what happened? Yeah, what, what happened here? Bad day in the market. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Actually, it's a pretty good day in the markets. Um, but what a week. What a couple of weeks it's been uh, in terms of volatility, concerns about macroeconomic growth. Uh, what's the smart conversation we should be having right now with investors? I think the real conversation is this is kind of a wake-up call. You know, maybe we're getting to the end of the cycle. I, th- I still think we've got a little ways to go. But now is a wake-up call to look at this risk and say, does this upset you? And if it does, we should talk about your portfolio because we might have some more stormy weather coming on. And so as you sort of talk to the couple thousand folks that are here, is their mood optimistic, cautious? They're obviously hearing from their clients uh, every day. How did they arrive here in Colorado? What, what was their state of mind? I think everybody still feels good for the most part. Mm-hmm. Everybody still mm-hmm. sees growth. Everybody still sees good things ahead. But at the same time, there's no doubt that there are more and more clouds. And that's what I think we're talking about is what do these clouds mean? Is it just a squall that's going to blow over or is it going to get into something worse? And that's really the question. I always wonder, too, Brad, here we are, what, 10 years out, longest economic expansion on record. We still continue to see financial markets, certainly on the equity side, move higher. Uh, Other asset classes as well. Uh, Bond market, you know, rates still very, very low. How do the clouds of today compare with what we've seen post-financial crisis? Because we've had kind of mini crises along the way. And that's a, that's a great, great way to phrase the question, Carol. I mean, the question you're asking when you look at, say, is it going to get bad? The lurking question is, do we have another 2008 coming? And I don't think we do because we simply don't have the kind of imbalances that we had then. That wasn't just a market downturn. It wasn't just a recession. It was a crisis. It was a potential collapse of the financial system, and that's not in the cards right now. So if you're looking for a comparison, it might be more like 2000. We'll have a recession, a medium recession, maybe a mild recession, and markets will react. But even there, I don't think we're going to see the same kind of pullback we did then. With interest rates where we are right now, there's a lot of support for valuation levels. So it doesn't, yes, it won't be fun. But we're not working right. at OA. Unless you're an Uber or a WeWork or a <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> right. Well, I want to take you a step further on that because I do wonder with the financial crisis, you know, still relatively fresh in people's memories and, and having a lot of wealth that just evaporated, you yep. know, back in, uh, in 08 and 09. 
do you feel like your colleagues here are having different sorts of conversations about sort of battening down the hatches to sort of make it through, even if it's milder on a relative basis? Are they making different decisions given that that's still in the back of their minds, even knowing what you just said about the, the, uh, the lack of severity maybe this time around? They are making different decisions because, first of all, you know it can be worse. Yeah. Know, even if you don't think it will be, you know that possibility can happen. Second of all, clients are 10 years older. Yeah. You know, so somebody who was 35 or 45 10 years ago, now they're 45 to 55. And that's a very different place to be looking mm-hmm. at these kind of drawdowns. You know, maybe you could legitimately say, I don't care. Yeah. 10 years on, it's harder to say that. I mean, in general, I think there's a greater appreciation for risk and avoiding the downturn. Right. I, to- I think, you know, asset preservation is a conversation and topic we don't talk enough about. Totally agree. In fact, I wrote a book on just that because I think that's the thing we really need to be talking about mm-hmm. right now. People are getting older. Boomers, they don't have the time. Right. They don't have the time. What? Well, and I do. <laughs> what? 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 Um, I do also want to ask you because, you know, you come to this really as a scientist in a lot of ways. Like you understand the numbers underneath it, a lot of where we're going from a technical that MS from MIT, Yeah, right? I mean, you've got an MIT background <laughs> here among your, your several degrees. And I do wonder how you look at the world of advice right now with that sort of scientist hat on, because I feel like we're having this discussion. We've been having it all day mm-hmm. today. Yep. We have it seemingly every day, that balance between using technology to your advantage, but also not forgetting the human. How do you balance that as you look across the Commonwealth universe? I think technology is a tool. And I think to the extent that we treat it as more than that, we're doing ourselves a disservice. I mean, this, this business is all about people. It doesn't, the investing is there to serve somebody's ability to retire, to play with their grandchildren. And likewise with markets, I look at markets as a human endeavor. There's a lot of talk about how things are different this time. It's still people Mm -hmm. buying and selling. Yes, there may be automated tools, but it's still people programming those tools. I don't think things change. For every people saying it's different this time, I don't think it is. Yeah. One of the things I want to ask you, because in the magazine this week, we have a deep dive into the world of private equity. And the private equity world is looking to kind of open up its investment world to more retail investors, I think, you know, down the road. Brad, what do you think are the asset classes that some of the investment advisors would like to open up more freely to some of their clients and you think would be a good thing? Well, I think in, there, is a lot of in, there is a lot of advisor interest in private equity. And I think the argument there is you're going to get healthy returns. People, people aren't saying, oh, we're going to get 30% returns. Right. But they figure we'll be able to match public market returns with less volatility. And I think that's a very attractive idea. And that's actually what's behind a lot of products coming out. You know, mm-hmm. it's very much the risk aversion that you were talking about, Carol. Right. We're going to give you the returns you need, but we're going to do it with less risk. The problem is this. If you look at some of the assets, and I'm going to pick on private equity because you mentioned it, it's very hard to value those assets. So the right. lack of volatility, yeah. If you, you can't look behind the curtain. To what extent is that an illusion? And... If you assume everything's going to come back. Right. But I do wonder about investors, you know, individual investors missing out on the opportunities in those more private markets, you know, versus what we're seeing in the public markets. Just got about 40 seconds left. And I think that's a legitimate concern. But when you look at, well, to, st- to take a step back, we were the private markets that valued WeWork to 
go back to your earlier thing, mm -hmm. at whatever it was valued at, now it's valued at a third of that or less. Are those private markets so smart? Correct. Ditto with point. Uber. I don't think you can assume private markets are more efficient. Yeah. Right. I think we're seeing a lot of the efficiency of the public markets right now as these uh, as these names come public. Peloton, I think, well, being a really interesting and example. And think about whether it was Steve Schwartzman and some others, right, in terms of the private equity world, saying that the capital markets, right. the, pro the public markets. James Gorman made that point to us uh, right. from Morgan Stanley as well. Uh, what a treat to catch up with you, Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer, Managing Principal of Commonwealth Financial Network. This is his party. He's looking um, cozy in a sweater out here. He is. No, I'm he looks it. very comfortable. It's like he's going to go on a hike and then come back and maybe sit by the fire, you know, you know, pour out some bromides for people about the uh, about the market. All right. Great bromides? to catch up with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hope, you'll, hope you'll join me for whiskey and bromides. Deal. Absolutely. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.